morning on Sunday mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order so we come to an interesting passage again it's kind of might be one of those passages that if you were just kind of jumping around and you weren't heading straight through it if I jumped this passage you guys would catch me and say why'd you jump that passage what are you so afraid of in there, you know? So, but anyway, so it kind of keeps me accountable to head straight through it. But this might be a passage that you'd be tempted to jump on, on some levels. And yet the importance of it and the richness, well, it is something. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. But although he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. And these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. And nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And then Jesus cried out and he said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. And I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I do not come to the, judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word which I have spoken will judge him in that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority. But the Father who sent me gave me a command that I sh what, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. We want you to know that we're so grateful to be able to turn to it today, the living book that it is, what it does inside of our spirits, Lord, how it directs our minds, our thinking, our emotions, our heart, Lord, every part of our lives in a way like nothing else in this world does. We pray, Lord, that your word would just, by your Holy Spirit, be the alive and powerful thing that you know it needs to be in this room this morning and in each one of our hearts. We look to you for it, Lord. Thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The key word for this section of Scripture is the word believe. And the reason that we know that it's the key word is that it is repeated no less than eight times through the passage. Jesus is now in what is literally the final days of his life in the city of Jerusalem prior to his death upon the cross for our sins. And he remains wildly popular with the common people, but in general the Jewish religious leaders 
continue to refuse to believe in him as the promised Messiah and as the Son of God. And at this critical point in Jesus' ministry, he rises up and he publicly condemns their unbelief directed toward him. And in doing so, he publicly condemns all unbelief on the part of human beings directed toward him. You see, while a person is free to reject Jesus as their Savior, and we are free to reject him as our Savior, it is also important that such a person realizes that Jesus has something to say about that rejection and that unbelief. And what he has to say about that unbelief is very, very strong. First of all, notice in verse 37 that our passage acknowledges that unbelief directed toward Jesus as the Son of God and as the promised Jewish Messiah and as the Savior of the world, that that unbelief was widespread in his day. And it remains widespread even today. They did not believe in him, we're told. Second, also in verse 37, our passage declares that all such unbelief directed toward Jesus is inexcusable and it is illogical. And why is it inexcusable and illogical? We're told here because of all of the miracles that Jesus performed. Now notice that Jesus' miracles are referred to as signs. And that's deliberate. When Jesus performed miracles, his miracles were intended to communicate something to us. More than just his power or his ability to perform miracles. They were intended to cause people to come to a proper conclusion about him, namely that he was and is the promised Jewish Messiah. He was and is the promised Savior of the world. What is a sign? We have signs all over, don't we, in our culture. We put signs all along our roadways. We're familiar with signs. What is a sign? Physical signs are something that we place along a road to ensure that people will come to a proper conclusion to their journey, that they'll have a successful end to their journey, that at the end of their journey they will end up in the place that they want to end up in, namely that they will end up home. In the same way, the signs that Jesus performed there were intended to bring us to a proper conclusion concerning him. And the proper conclusion that they're intended to bring us to is that he is the Son of God and that he is the Savior of the world. And as a result of coming to that conclusion about Jesus, we can enjoy a successful end to our journey called life in this world and then have an entrance into heaven. The sheer quantity and quality of Jesus' miracles do not allow any honest person to categorize him as a mere man 
Only God could do the things that Jesus did. Raising the dead at will with a word. Able to heal people with a word. Able to not only heal people individually or one and two at a time, but as we're told that he did in his public ministry many times, healing entire villages of every physical affliction present in the village. Able to cast out demons with a word. Able to still a storm, a wild storm on the Sea of Galilee with His voice as a demonstration of His authority over all of nature. His ability to multiply five loaves and two fishes to feed 5,000 men plus their wives and all of their children. And on and on we could go related to His miracles. Who else in human history rivals Jesus in this regard? No one. Solely on the basis of His miracles, He is in a category of one in all of human history. I think it's so easy to hear about Jesus' miracles, even to believe in His miracles, and, and still remain unsaved, and, and fail to stop and to think about what these miracles speak to us and are intended to speak to us, to fail to allow those miracles to bring us to the logical conclusion about Jesus that they're intended to do so. And what they tell us about Jesus is that He is the promised Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Unbelief in Jesus is also illogical and inexcusable in the light of the sign of all the fulfilled prophecies associated with his life and his ministry. And I won't go into any depth here. But the Old Testament Scriptures declared that when the Messiah came, he would be born in Bethlehem, and so Jesus was. That he would be born of a virgin, and so Jesus was. That He would be Emmanuel, He would be divine, He would be God with us, and so Jesus was. That He would be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and so Jesus was. The Old Testament Scriptures declared that He would come into the world and be betrayed, betrayed by a friend, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that He would be beaten and He would be spat upon, that He would die and die a death that would result in the piercing of His hands and feet, crucifixion, that He would be crucified between transgressors, that the soldiers would gamble for His garments at the base of the cross that He was crucified on, that His side would be pierced, that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb and that he would rise again on the third day, all of which Jesus did. And on and on we could go in all of that. Unbelief is also illogical and inexcusable in the light of his perfect and sinless life. And he brings all of that out in verse 45. Earlier in, Jesus, in, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 8, Jesus confronted these same religious leaders with their illogical and inexcusable uh, unbelief directed toward him. 
And he spoke to them publicly, and he said, Which of you convicts me of sin? Posed the question to them publicly. They had the absolute open opportunity to throw any sin in his face, to accuse him of even a single wrongdoing, a single word, a single moment of unrighteous anger, anything to throw in his face that would allow them to hold on to their position that he was imperfect and thus could not be the Son of God. So he said, which of you convicts me of sin? They had him under their microscope for three and a half years. They listened to everything that he said. They watched him in the daytime. They watched him in the nighttime. They watched him in public. They watched him in private. They watched him with friends. They watched him with his enemies. And after three and a half years, he gives them the invitation to bring forth but one sin that he had committed in those three and a half years. And their response was deafening. It was silence. Unbroken silence. These men would have given their right arm, collectively their right arms, to be able to put their minds together to think of one place, one time, one event, one word, one anything that represented a sin in his life and to throw it back into his face and publicly humiliate him and and then publicly disqualify his claims that he was making concerning himself. But they couldn't break the silence. Which of you convicts me of sin? No answer. And it's interesting that Jesus alone then broke that silence and only Jesus can break that silence of that question. And that question will produce nothing but silence no matter what sinner it is opposed to or what human being it's posed to. And he broke the silence with a second question. And the second question he posed was, And if I tell you the truth, then why do you not believe me? He brings them to the logical conclusion that their silence should have brought them to, that we are indeed dealing with someone unique in human history, even in his sinlessness and in his perfection. And he has done nothing to disqualify him self-concerning his claims to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the Son of God. Do you realize that if you reject Jesus, you reject his claims, you reject him as your Savior, and you leave this life, you will have to give a reason for rejecting him as Messiah, as Savior, as the Son of God. It's illogical to reject Him for no reason. And that same question will be posed to you. Which of you convicts me of sin? We're not going to stand before Jesus one day in groups of five or twelve or twenty or a hundred or a million at a time. To reject Christ and to one day stand before him on the other side of this life, I will do, a person will do that alone. And there needs to be an answer. And I would challenge anyone to search the entirety of these scriptures and see if you can find a single fault in him, a single reason for rejecting him. And if you can't find a fault in him and you won't find a fault in him, 
then the second question he would pose to you is then, why don't you believe me? No one will ultimately be able to claim some sin in Jesus, some perfection in him as a basis for their rejection of him. Number three, concerning man's rejection of Jesus, our passage reminds us that it was predicted by God, verse 38. It was foreknown and foretold by the Holy Spirit. The fact that Messiah would be generally met with unbelief rather than faith when he came into the world was prophesied by the Holy Spirit 740 years through the prophet Isaiah before Jesus was even born. And in verse 38, verse 38 quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, which is the single greatest chapter in all of, uh, of the Bible having to do with the, the Messiah, all of it wonderfully fulfilled by Jesus. And Isaiah begins that great prophecy by declaring, as is quoted in verse 38, that the coming of Messiah would, number one, be met with unbelief, and then, number two, that that unbelief would be in spite of the arm of the Lord, speaking of God's miracles manifested through Jesus. And so it's happening. 2,000 years ago, just as was prophesied, and it happens yet today, their very unbelief toward Jesus, illogical, inexcusable, was the fulfillment of prophecy. One of the things that this speaks to us as Christians is that we must never let the unbelief of others, no matter how many, ever stumble us in our faith in Jesus. God knows all about it. God knows all about the fact that his people be a minority in, in, in first century minority all the way until the time Jesus comes back to rapture the church. Numbers mean nothing in this regard. If you were the only one to have trusted in Jesus as your Savior on the basis of his miracles, on the basis of the scriptures, on the basis of his sinless life, if you were the only one among six and a half billion people in this world, the only one in your apartment complex, the only one in your neighborhood, the only one in your schoolyard, then you would be the only one that would be right despite the imbalance of the numbers. I think in this vein of Noah and the flood, they estimate as they look at the genealogies of the Old Testament, the population of the earth was probably not quite as great as it is today, but approaching it. This wasn't something where you had a group of 10,000 people living in the Middle East at the time of of, of the flood of, uh, of Noah in, in the book of, of Genesis at the time of Noah. There were billions of people on the earth. When God spoke of a judgment that was going to come upon the earth, God was right. 
And only eight people, all of them in Noah's family, were right. And everyone else in the world was wrong. And what this speaks to those of you who have not yet trusted in Jesus as your Savior is you must never, ever draw any comfort from the large number of people who share your current view concerning Jesus. Again, you will one day stand before him on your own. Don't base your decision concerning him on who else does or doesn't believe in him, even religious leaders. Jesus calls you to look at the evidence for yourself. Number four in verses 39 through 41, our passage exposes the true cause of unbelief, that it is due to blindness and it is due to hard hearts. And again, John quotes from Isaiah, and the quote is from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has been commissioned to go to the Jewish people and to call on them to repent and to follow after the Lord. And God spoke to them through Isaiah, knowing that they would either repent and obey him or that they would harden their heart against his message to such a degree that they would reach the point where they could not believe. Do you realize that every time someone says no to God's invitation to be saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, it becomes easier to say no the next time. Until, as is the case with these Jewish religious leaders, you can say no in the face of undeniable evidence, indisputable evidence. When a person begins to knit, it's an interesting thing to watch when they first start out. So you have these two needles and they got a ball of thread and, and they got to learn how to coordinate their fingers and get the yarn doing its whole thing and everything. And then if they miss one thing, they got to pull the whole thing out or start all over again. And so it's a, it's a little clumsy on the front end of things. But it, it, if they stay with it, it isn't long before they can knit like grease lightning. You ever seen a knit? I don't know how, what grease lightning is, but I mean, it's fast. They can knit fast. Click, 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 so she just started to knit through the service and everything. She's multitasking way before multitasking was, you know, a hip word and thought of as, as commendable. But we had to put a stop to it because what she didn't realize is that she wasn't in front of her television at home. And, and so she's doing all this knitting and everybody for four rows is watching her knitting. And then I didn't know what she was going to do next. Was she going to whittle next week? I mean, bring some knives and wood or... Bring the snakes the following week. I just couldn't risk it. And uh, she ended up being a type A. She was very unhappy with the whole thing. I don't know that we saw her ever again. But I've got to give her credit. She could knit. She could do it. The human mind is, is interesting. 
in that it can reach a point where once a certain action is ingrained in it, it'll just automatically do what it's always done. And the same thing can happen to a person with the gospel. The first time that they hear the gospel, they know it's true, and the Holy Spirit is, is bearing witness to them of the truth of it. The proof is undeniable, and yet they refuse to trust in Jesus. And what they fail to realize is that in order to do that, they had to blind their eyes to the evidence and they had to harden their heart to the witness of the Holy Spirit. And then the next time, there's that conviction when they hear the gospel to believe but it's a little bit less than the last time. So they're able to say no to God's offer of salvation a little bit easier than the first time. And so it goes until one day they have said no so often that now later in life, every time they hear the gospel, they dismiss it automatically. Their mind does automatically what it has been trained to do with the gospel, and that is to reject it. And a person can come to think that they have rejected the gospel because now they're older and they're wiser. And what they don't realize is that the real cause is that they have blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts to the truth concerning Jesus to such a degree that they cannot believe. On top of all of that, it's entirely possible for someone to reject the truth of God and the warnings of God and then at some point in time for God himself to harden their hearts in that condition. And that's scary. And it's real. I think about Pharaoh in the Old, Te in the Old Testament. God sent Moses and Aaron to him, let my people go. Let my people go. And we're told over and over again that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. And then later in the passage, we read, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The Lord stepped in and confirmed him in that unbelieving condition. Now notice very carefully on this. Notice in verse 37 that we are first told that they did not believe. That's something they did. And only after that are we told in verse 39 that they could not believe. They're completely responsible for their unbelieving condition and its consequences, and so are we. It is a privilege to hear the Lord's voice this morning in this room and rooms like it all around the world. It is a privilege to hear God's voice and God's invitation of salvation to be received as a free gift by putting my faith in His Son. And no one should ever assume that we will ever have a chance to do that again. I don't need to tell you how fragile life is in Modesto. 
How quickly you can hear someone's alive and then someone's dead and then somebody this and how did it happen and all of this. There's no guarantees for us. But one of the things that this passage teaches us is that we should never assume that your heart will be any softer toward God in making the right decision about Jesus Christ than it is this morning. You will never be more clear-headed and more soft-hearted toward the things of God than you are today. Because if you reject His offer today, you will have to blind yourself to do it and harden your heart to do it. And you will be thinking less clearly and more hard-heartedly the next time that you hear the gospel. Fifth, in, and finally, in this vein of man's unbelief in verses 44 through 49, Jesus warns us that one day all unbelief directed toward him is going to be judged. In those verses of 44 through 49, Jesus repeats the word judge four times. And Jesus was not a person to waste his breath. There are eternal consequences for rejecting Jesus as my Savior. And as a nation, as a group of people in this country, we've got to come back to taking God's voice seriously. Individually, we need to do that. This is a big deal. It is a big deal for God to send His Son into the world to pay the price that was needed to be paid for the forgiveness of our sins, to watch the abuse, to hear the blasphemy, to do all of those things, and yet to do it because there was no other way by which we might be saved. It's important not to sniff at God's salvation because of the culture and the disrespect of our culture today, and to sniff at something that is the most highly prized thing in heaven. The Bible says concerning Jesus' death upon the cross that when the angels watched it, they marveled at what they were seeing. This Jesus that they had been with from eternity, hanging on a cross. I mean, they just had to be waiting for one word from the Father to put a stop to the blasphemy of the whole scene. Yet no word came. It's a big deal for God to provide mankind with a salvation, to make it free, and to offer it to us as a free gift. Sometimes we devalue things because they are free. It's part of the culture. I don't know if it's true of other parts of the world. I know it's true of the United States in large part. Some of you who are in business or some of you who... You know, you do maybe some kind of an entertainment deal or something like that. You know if you make it free, people won't think it's valuable. 
I know business people and I know people have put on different concerts and different kinds of things and they charge a price because people will devalue or undervalue something by virtue of the fact that it's free. And we cannot carry that over to the gospel. The gospel is priceless. Salvation is priceless. The reason that God has made it free is that He had to make it free because there's nothing that we can add to our salvation. But it doesn't make it any less valuable. It doesn't make it any less awesomely priceless because it is free. It's an awesome thing for God to extend the offer of salvation to us. Notice some of the reasons that all unbelief toward Jesus will one day be judged. Verse 44, and these are reasons that Jesus gives. Because to reject Jesus is to also reject the one who sent him into the world to die for our sins. It is to reject the Father himself because he spoke in his Father's authority. To reject the message of Jesus isn't to reject the message of some mere man who lived in the world 2,000 years ago. It is to reject the message of God the Father and God the Son concerning the most important subject in our lives, and that is the subject of salvation. Another reason unbelief will be judged as inexcusable is because as we saw earlier in verse 45, to reject Jesus is to reject a perfect life. The life of the one who perfectly represented the nature of the Father in this world. In verse 46, a further reason all unbelief will be judged as inexcusable is because of his Ability, Jesus' ability to unfailingly deliver people out of darkness and bring them into light. To unfailingly take people out of the darkness of sin and bring them successfully into a life of holiness and a life of light and purity. Look at the quality of life that Jesus' teaching produces in a person. Look at the hundreds of millions of people who have had their lives changed and transformed through beginning a simple, personal relationship with Jesus through faith and then following it with a life of simple obedience. Who else in the world is producing this kind of change, much less on any level. Who else in the world is producing this kind of change in numbering in the millions of people? Who, is, who else is producing these kind of dramatic results in the human condition? What religion? What philosophy? What ology? What theory of man, what tradition of man exists in this world that even remotely rivals what Christ and the gospel does every day, all day, all around this world, all through human history? To reject Christ 
is to reject a mountain of practical evidence for the truthfulness of his message. And that mountain of evidence is called changed lives by the thousands, by the millions. The final reason that all unbelief will one day be judged is because all unbelief essentially calls Jesus a liar. It accuses him of being untrue, what he says. And it not only is to declare the Son of God to be a liar, it is to declare God the Father to be a liar, for he spoke the Father's words. I would never want to bet a nickel, much less my eternal salvation on the odds that Jesus was and is a liar. It is a fool's bet. It's so heavy to bet my eternity on the odds that Jesus was lying rather than telling the truth when he said, most assuredly I say to you that unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Or when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. One day, in every one of our lives, Jesus' words are going to have the final say about our lives and about our eternal destination. So I have one of two choices to make concerning him. I better be able to find some sin or error in his life and in his teaching as a basis for my unbelief or a better testament in him as my Savior. And that's Jesus' counsel in verse 50. And I know that his, that is the Father's command, is everlasting life. And that's where Jesus leaves all of this. With an exhortation to obey the Father's command to believe in Jesus for everlasting life. Unbelief is an affront to God. It is an insult to God. It is a blasphemy against His nature and against His character. Those are strong things to say, aren't they? But it's true. We live in this nut house 
called planet Earth. It's an insane asylum. This is the crazy place. Heaven is the same place. There's very clear thinking in heaven. There's very clear reasoning in heaven. And we need to think like heaven and reason like heaven in all areas, but certainly concerning the most important decision that we will make in life, and that is concerning where we will spend eternity. He's getting closer to the cross. He speaks with unbelievable almost and unmistakable clarity in this passage concerning salvation. And how illogical and how unreasonable it is not to believe in Him. And I think one of the reasons that he says it with such force here is he's endeavoring to break these religious leaders out of their thinking. And I think it's recorded in the pages of Scripture in order to break through and the lives of any of us here this morning where you have heard the gospel over and over and over and over again and you don't realize what is happening to you and you don't realize the danger that you're putting yourself in and how high the stakes are. To reject Jesus and his salvation is to call him a liar and his teaching and his word that should shake us up and make us rethink what we're thinking and what we're believing. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, it should shake us all the way over to a place of putting our faith in that perfect life. It's the only logical thing to do. It's the only reasonable thing to do. And not to do so, Jesus teaches, is simply inexcusable. God loves us. I know Jesus loves me. I know he loves you. I know he loves all of us. So I look at this passage and I think, man, boom. That's... That's saying some stuff right there. And I know he says it out of love. And I know he says it out of a love in order to maybe break through some hard hearts this morning. If you haven't believed in Jesus as your Savior, this is a very, very searching, very, very unsettling passage of Scripture, and it's intended to be so. To drive you to the day and hopefully today and this morning is the day and, this, and the time where you would turn to God in the privacy of your own life 
Say, God, I believe your assessment of me. I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all my life. But I believe that you're so holy, and I believe that heaven is so holy, that but a single sin disqualifies me for it. I count myself completely disqualified in and of myself to earn a way into heaven. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your Son into this world to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And I believe that's the Savior and that's the salvation that pleases you. And so I repent of my sin. I repent of my self-will. I repent of all my thinking and my pride and all this kind of stuff. I turn from all of that and I put my faith in the Savior that you have sent. And when a person does that, the greatest miracle that happens in all of the world happens and it will happen all over the world today. God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will come into your life and you will begin a personal relationship with God, receiving His forgiveness receiving everlasting life, beginning a relationship with him that will outlast all of this life and all the way through the life to come. And it's offered to us this morning as a free gift, not as a statement concerning its value, but as a statement of the fact that none of us could add a single thing to that salvation it had to be a free gift. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after our time here in the Word and the final worship song. They'll have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. They would love to pray with you to give your life to the Lord this morning. And they'll give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord today. This is the greatest life, and God wants all of us to be in the middle of it paid a great price to make it possible. These same men and women will be up in front in order to pray for you related to anything that you might need prayer for in your lives this morning. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for our Savior and all that he means to us and all that he has brought into our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for being released from the guilt of our past. Thank you for the power to live a new kind of life. Thank you for a personal relationship with you that gets deeper and sweeter every day. Thank you for conquering death in our lives so that we don't have to think about it or worry about it. Thank you for giving us the confidence of everlasting life so we don't have to wonder about our eternities. Thank you for wrapping up all of the most important issues and questions in life all in one person and one Savior. Thank you for our Jesus this morning. And we just give you praise, Lord for all the sacrifice that you made, that he made, made by the Holy Spirit in order for us to be uh, saved and cleansed and forgiven and hope-filled, power-filled people. 
And we pray, Lord, for each man and woman that stands before you right now that doesn't know you yet. We know that if you saved us, if you could save the Apostle Paul and get through to him, you can get through to anyone. And we just pray that you'd speak to their hearts today, that today is their day, and to open their heart up to you and begin the relationship that they've been created for. We look for that work of your Holy Spirit in each one of their lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.